I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, we're going to be trying something a little bit different. I'm here with my longtime colleague, dear friend, and partner in crime, Ann Taylor Fleming, Associate Director of the Writers' Conference. And we thought we would bring you into our programming wheelhouse for a little bit. We've just wrapped up programming for this summer's 2022 Literary Conference this July. And we are incredibly excited by all the extraordinary writers we have coming and the great breadth of topics, voices, and intellects that we have over the course of the long weekend that the conference will be held over. And we thought we would sort of bring you into both our thinking about how we came up with the program, the great good fortune we had in doing so, but also our particular passions for the writers we have and the talks that we're going to be hearing and why we're so excited to hear certain of them. With that said, welcome, Anne, again, since we talk almost every day. Yeah. Hi, John. This is the time that we've just finished writing everything up, and I just re-looked at it this morning. And I thought, oh my gosh, all the work that went into it. But then I got real excited again. It's a great program. And uh, it also feels um, fortuitously timely in terms of the, the themes and subjects it has. Um, and I thought we would begin with two panels that we were fortunate enough to be able to put together. They in- include some writers that we got uh, really at the, at the last few weeks as we looked at our program which was already very strong. And then we began to feel as world events uh, have taken the dark turn that they have. And with the idea that we wanted to be able to address some of these subjects in a conversational panel format, we went out and sought a few more fantastic writers to add to them. 
One of the people that we brought in to oversee these panels, to moderate them, was Judy Woodruff, who uh, you've known for many years from your time at PBS. Yeah, she's just a wonderful, as everybody knows, interviewer, moderator. She does all of her homework. She makes it look easy, and she's extremely fair-minded. So people across every spectrum really respect her. I was very excited. She's not been to the conference before, so she's very pleased to come. And I think we we pressed her into a fairly high amount of service, you and I, but she signed up for both of our panels. And let me throw it back to you and talk about the first panel that she will moderate our first night. Yeah, we're starting that first day with one panel and ending the conference uh, with the other. And the, the first panel is titled The March of the Autocrats. And I think it won't come as any surprise to anyone listening um, why we are leaning in that direction to start. And the panelists that we have brought together, um, very excited about Stephen Kotkin, uh, who is uh, one of the great Russian scholars uh, of our time and and the author, I would say his masterwork among many books uh, is a planned trilogy about Stalin uh, biography. And he's already published two of the volumes and the third is going to come out next year or, or the year after. And um, I can say, having written a novel uh, loosely based on the life of Stalin's daughter, The Red Daughter, and having done years of reading about Stalin and uh, Soviet history, that Kotkin, uh, really his, his work stands uh, above everything else I've read on the subject. And he, you know, obviously, I think we all know that democracy is under siege during these months and years, and authoritarianism is uh, extremely troublingly on the rise. And we've wanted to gather Experts with of different stripes, if you will, uh, who also write beautifully to do that. And joining uh, Stephen will be Yasha Monk, who whose great subject really is the crisis of liberal democracy and the rise of populism in the world. And Yasha himself um, has been writing some very powerful op-eds uh, recently because his grandparents were Lithuanian. Yasha is, 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 grew up in Germany. And um, so, as is uh, the case with so many people, the, it, this is a very personal story as, as uh, Putin um, and the Russians uh, have invaded and are attacking Ukraine. And joining them is Ben Rhodes, uh, who many will remember as um, you know, the uh, Deputy National Security Advisor to Obama throughout Obama's presidency. And he's come out of that um, with two wonderful books. First was more about his time in the administration, but the one he's published more recently is um, is really it's about the subtitle is "Living in the wor- in the World That America Made." And he's he spent you know a couple of years traveling around after he left the administration to um, points of autocratic governments. Uh, looking at opposition uh, powers as well, and really trying to understand how our government has indeed affected the great the policies that that we all had been supporting, and he certainly uh, above all, and how that had actually, in real terms, affected the world, and whether it had what harm it had done, what good, and where the world was in terms of. 
that move again from democracy to authoritarianism in, in, in too many places. So they're going to dive into that, obviously, Ukraine and Putin um, and China and, and others. But that's going to, um, I think it sort of has to inevitably lay the groundwork in some way because it's it's so much on our minds. So that that's the, the, the front point of the <laughs> of the. Uh, the sandwich board and the, the the back half I will hand over to you. Yeah. The other panel is going to be a domestic one and it's called subtly will democracy survive and I think that we've all had our eyes on America just as we have on the world and seen trends that are unnerving shall we say from you know the the terrible divisions the rise of Trump, the uh, January 6th insurrection. So again, we had just some fantastic people. Um, we had already invited um, Heather McGee, who is a, a social and economic specialist. She has a wonderful original book out called The Sum of Us, um, which I read early and made a passionate plea to John. We should say one of the things we do with each other is if somewhere along the way you read a book or read about a book, you send up a flare of passion to your partner and say, hey, we got to do this. Um, and that's the really fun part for me is, is sometimes John is completely in agreement with me, which of course is the best. Sometimes he's not. <laughs> sometimes I am not in complete agreement with him. And then we mount these passionate defenses. When it came to Heather McGee, we were both all in. The book is really about how racism has disaffected the country. It's not a polemic. It's a deeply felt emotional book about the fact that racism has not only distorted the soul of the country, but the economy as well, causing divisions that that reverberate through the through the culture. Other people, Arthur Brooks was one of our late additions and somebody we're really excited about. He represents, we think, a slightly different viewpoint. He was the head of the American Enterprise Institute. He has written a wonderful book, again, about the things that divide us. So he, like Heather, has traveled the country. He has eyeballs on the country. But again, a, not somebody who's an ideologue, somebody who can air these, these um, divisions in a really uh, good way. Last is Evan Osnos, known to many of you, wonderful journalist, New Yorker writer, um, was a China expert for The New Yorker has a book out, had a recent book called Wildland about the fury that has beset America. It's just an extraordinary book. Again, all these people do such unbelievable reporting, but they're also storytellers. The, 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 I think all these books are really accessible and that these conversations are going to come as much from the heart as from the head. That's, uh, that's really, really well said, Anne. We talked a lot about, uh, as we put together our groups of writers, you know, we're, we're aware of little veins of thematic veins, if you mm -hmm. will, that we're putting together. And let's say we have 25 or 30 writers at the end, which is normal, I would say for us. And we have a particular passion or interest in each writer, but at the same time, we're aware of little pods, uh, you know, sort of forming and how, and wondering how we're going to be able to, um, to program those without unbalancing, if you will, what we hope is going to be a very full uh, and wider conversation. So obviously we have autocracy, we have democracy slash the crisis of liberal democracy, if you will. Um, and 
you know, that's one theme that definitely uh, rose to the surface as we added Stephen Kotkin and Evan Osnos was there and Yasha Monk. Um, and then we have, uh, there's an environmental slash climate change uh, vein in the program uh, because we had also been extremely fortunate to be able to get um, Elizabeth Colbert and uh, Terry Tempest Williams um, on board. And at the same time uh, this year, while this was all going on, uh, we got the tragic news that E.O. Wilson had, had died. Um, I would say it was tragic, except the man had lived one of the most extraordinary lives yeah. and, um, you know, has left his mark on, uh, on science and evolutionary biology in a way that maybe a handful of people ever had. And so with these pieces in mind, um, we set about trying to see how they might fit. And, um, you know, I think you've read uh, Betsy Colbert's books under yeah. the, uh, the Sixth Extinction and, uh, and Under a White Sky, which is called, the subtitle there is The Nature of the Future. It's a, it's a sort of companion piece to that earlier book, The Sixth Extinction, but it, it's not only a warning. It's right. also a, an optimistic and imaginative look at how people are trying to embrace the realities that we're facing in order to think up new ways to save the planet. It is more optimistic. It's still very cautionary. But the, but the thing, I, I just listening to you, I'm struck by something. I think people are looking for hope. And I think, you know, even in the Ukraine panel, even in the democracy panel, even in the climate panel, the people we have are sufficiently thoughtful and mindful of the universe that, in effect, with their own writing, they're trying to change and make a better world. And that may be, you know, a little bit corny, but I keep hearing that. And I am i know I'm hungry for it. And I think that that's a piece, uh, one of those little veins that you're talking about. Well, I think it sort of gets into the the area where, you know, as so many parents, you know, at one point turning to yeah. to my son, Garrick, who's, who's 16 and saying more or less, you know, well, um, these are the problems, you know, <laughs> yeah. which, of course, are, are making everybody extraordinarily depressed. And you you and your generation are going to be the ones to, to save the planet. And his response, you know, one day was, well, I mean, wh- what about you guys? You, you yeah. didn't do anything. And you're just handing it over, and so you want you want someone to be able to speak to them as much to us, and to say, um, you know, there are there are people who are who have absorbed this information and are continuing to sort absorb it, but it is not reason to simply despair. That there yeah. are ideas, and there are um, there are possibilities technologically and imaginatively ahead. That gets me to Terry Tempest Williams, who is, I mean, in a, in a way, it's sort of like the head and the heart, I would say, with, with, mm-hmm. uh, between Colbert and, and, and Williams. I mean, Terry is, um, she's an iconic voice, really, in, in conservatism, as in conser- conservation, conservation of the land. <laughs> right, exactly. Not, not the other <laughs> not way. Not conservatism, and, right. No, and, um, and environmentalism. I mean, she inhabits and has really her whole writing life um, this space that is all about the connection between language and landscape. And as it was for 
you know, in the vein, I would say, of Whitman, Thoreau, you, Peter Matheson, our, our, our old dear friend, and Edward Abbey. And she, I would say she belongs in that tradition. And, you know, she, the book that first, I first heard about um, from my parents, actually, was Refuge, uh, An Unnatural History of Family and Place, which was her sixth book some years ago. And it, that book describes how the Great Salt Lake rose to record levels and eventually flooded the wetlands that serve as a refuge for migratory birds mm. in northern Utah there. And Terry told this story against the backdrop of her, her own family's struggle with cancer, generations of them, right. breast cancer in yeah. all these generations, and which was a result of living downwind from a nuclear test site. Yeah. And so it's, it's the way that she manages to tell stories, personal and yeah. public, and to embed them in a spirit that, um, that, that puts such value in the land that we live in. Right. And I mean, there's one of her books is called um, The Hour of the Land. Her most recent is called Erosion. And it's really a book about the erosion, not only of our landscape, but a, a, a grief the grief that that comes from that that we all have to live with, yeah. and so she's speaking that way, and she and Betsy are going to have a conversation together, along with each speaking separately, um, which is really titled "The Earth and Us." And um, by the, the way, that, yeah, I'm sorry, I just ahead. wanted to say that was a really good idea of yours. I like to, <laughs> I like to say that when we go along. Well, we go back and forth. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, and I. Um, I don't know exactly what they'll say, but um, I can't wait to hear them. Yeah. And uh, I know they've, they're friends and they, they go back a long way together. So anyway, that's another, that's another sort of vein in, in the program, as is, uh, of course, poetry. 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 Yeah. I mean, I was thinking uh, coming out of uh, Terry Tempest Williams, it's a good segue because she certainly has a poetic voice, but we have this here a couple of incredible poets. We have the um, Vietnamese-American poet, Ocean Biong, who has a new book out called Time is a Mother that is just going through the roof. I know, John, you and I talked about it. I think you you were talking about it months it's a beautiful, and months. beautiful it's, book. It's yeah. absolutely stunning. He writes with grief. He writes about the loss of his mother, but he then has this joyous, um, almost ecstatic relationship to both love and to nature. Um, in these dark, dark days, I can't imagine anything more exciting. I, I have also listened to Ocean as you have. Mm -hmm. He's just stunning. He speaks right to the bone of the soul of loss and love in a way that is just amazing. It's also, I really, um, I'm really inspired by the way, you know, his first book was a volume of poetry. Right. His second book was a novel, very right. powerful and then the third book now is is poetry and they all blend together into yeah. a form that feels almost indistinguishable uh -huh. one from the other and um you know i think we're starting to see that a little more now with poets and poets mm -hmm. are writing memoirs too um obviously we'll I'll talk about natasha trethway in a few minutes but uh i i think that that's really interesting and his voice which is on the one hand very quiet and i mean that in a his personal voice right. at the same time, as you say, I mean, it's so strong and, um, luckily, you know, 
this is a, another aspect of we have big stages and and smaller stages right. and one very massive stage at the conference. And Ocean is a person you want to put him in a room that's not too big. That's intimate. Uh, because that, that it has the intimacy that he has. Right. And the other poet, of course, is Rita Dove. And I, I, again, her, her, I had read her through the years, this new collection, Playlist for the uh, Apocalypse. Mm. Again, it's just she's writing right at the top of every gift that she has. And we're going to do something wonderful. We're going to um, start the very first Saturday with her reading in the pavilion, sort of a convocation, if you will, from this new collection. And you know, I, it was my pleasure to write up this new book. And I said, you know, she's a poet's poet because her gifts are with language are so extraordinary, but she's a poet for all of us. And I think that to listen to her and the range of this book, it goes from Trayvon Martin to one of my favorite poems about um, uh, talking to her own knees, which are arthritic, <laughs> and she's really annoyed at them. And But in that, even in that whimsy is, is her remarkable gift and some grief. So I think with these two poets... I, I just can't wait to hear them. I mean, I I'm, I find myself increasingly in these dark days turning to poets for for spiritual uplift. No, and it, it's true. And you're always um, urging us to have more of the spoken word of language. We get, you know, we have so many ideas and issues and things we want to get yeah. to, and and we we're not we don't do things in a sort of typical uh, book tour way, but at the same time. We can forget to have a few minutes here and there of people actually reading Hearing the written the, word, yep. yeah, aloud, and really it's really good important. Point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, that's your—it's your point. You've been making all the time, and <laughs> and we don't always make enough space for it. I think, right. and but you know, Natasha Trethaway, I'm just going to add her to this list. Not, Please, she's she's not here to to read her poetry, which she has done before, and of course, she's won a Pulitzer for that. Uh, she's a, a really important poet, I think. Um, but this memoir she wrote, uh, Memorial Drive, it just, we have a number, I guess, again, getting back to that vein, thematic veins that that run through this. We have um, a few very powerful memoirs and okay. and they all deal in different ways with, with grief and grief's relationship um, to love, creative beginnings and uh, the other side of grief, I would say the gift in some way of coming out of that. The resilience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, in Natasha's case, uh, as some of the listeners will know, she was 19 when she received the news that her mother had been shot and killed by her stepfather, by Natasha's stepfather. And it um, it set in motion a, as as one would expect, um, a really traumatic time for Natasha as she began to both dive back into that world and what had happened to her mother, but then it also became a catalytic point in her development as an artist. Yeah, and this book, from some years distance, goes back and. And and begins to sort of swim through that through those waters, and she does it in such a as a poet. You know, she she yeah. brings all of the different threads together. She she it, it's a way of investigating racism and a, a way of investigating, um, you know, 
uh, domestic abuse and a way of guilt and mother-daughter relations and the relationship between all of those things and where where art comes from for yeah. for all of us. And it's a very powerful story. And, you know, again, she's a person with a voice in every sense of the word. It's an unbelievably remarkable read. And one of the things I love about the book, with all those topics that you're talking about, it's very visual. You can Mm -hmm. see the places she grew up. You can smell the climate. You can feel the weather. It's a remarkably evocative story. And, you know, moving along in that vein, we have Catherine Schultz, uh, the wonderful staff writer at the New Yorker, and her most recent story is Lost and Found. I mean, I think she first really hit people's radars uh, when she won the um, Pulitzer for um, commentary or, or for, for feature writing, feature writing and, yeah. uh, which was her piece about, you know, seismic events in the Pacific Northwest, which sounds like, you know, in, in it, it sounds like a sort of not particularly, uh, you know, revealing subject. And yet she turned it into uh, the, a, a piece about how we live and what we live with and what we're willing to live with. Yeah, the fear. And the fear. And this is a book, it's a kind of double memoir, and I love the twinned aspect of it. Yeah. And, you know, the first part is the loss of her father, who was this extremely uh, charismatic and warm, deeply intellectual man who loved his family and came, he was a refugee of, of Jewish parents who you know who had lost family in the war, and he had this extraordinary uh, charisma yeah. and love of learning, and he was a touchstone to Catherine and and to the whole family. And in talking about losing him, she opens a portal into a story about losing everything, everything. all the different ways, yeah. like right, losing Remember your car keys. keys, yeah, but also tapping into. As this begins to to open out, um, she begins to look at the ways in which it it begins to morph into ways of looking at happiness. Mm -hmm. Because before you lose things, you have to have had them Mm -hmm. and beginning to recognize that. And then it begins to open up as she, because 18 months before she loses her father, she meets the woman who she falls in love with and is her partner today, who is Casey Sepp. Uh, another celebrated New Yorker uh, staff writer, and uh, we'll get to her in a moment. Yeah. And so even while she's losing the most important person in her life, she's also gaining the most important person in her life. And that becomes a meditation on on the guilt, but also the beauty of having happiness in the midst of grief, which is another reflection on how and when world the world is going to hell, as it were, um, we're also able and in fact required to know happiness too. Right, right. You know, again, I was thinking uh, something keeps striking me in her book as well. The specifics, your the time and place. You described the father when when you see her father sitting in the chair in the living room. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I felt I was there. I mean, and it occurs mm-hmm. to me that the writing that you and I love, John, has to have specifics in it. It's not just talking about grief, but what what did that room feel like? What did that hospital room feel like? What did it feel like the first time she saw Casey Sepp walking down the street? I mean, yep. I was my my nerve endings were all riled up with excitement. 
it's remarkably a specific storytelling. So which gets us into fiction. Uh, I can't believe we didn't even do it first, but it is. We <laughs> We're are, all about in, our panels. <laughs> we are incredibly lucky to have, yeah. um, you know, some absolutely fantastic fiction writers. And, you know, Lauren Groff uh, is one of them. And I, I've been a fan of Lauren's uh, since, um, you know, I think it was Arcadia when it was her first book, or maybe it was Monsters of Templeton. And... One of the things about her, many readers know her, of course, from Fates and Furies and now The Matrix, which is uh, her most recent book. And I think she just keeps expanding her talents and the, her the worlds that she's inhabiting. I mean, The Matrix really blew me away because, first of all, it's a feminist story set in the 12th century, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's, uh, it's this uh, remarkable young woman who is uh, sort of banished from Eleanor of Aquitaine's castle and, and sent to become uh, an abbess in, in, in England of a, a star, literally a, a broken down uh, abbey uh, where the nuns are starving and the place seems about to, to fall apart. And we watch her grow into her powers to recognize them and then to grow into them and to decide that she's going to um, find strength and give strength to these women. Yeah. And in all of their troubles and their sensuality yeah. in cases, yeah. and also to uh, believe in her own visions against the the tide right. of the time. She's such a wonderful physical heroine too, because she's big, sort of lumpy. Yeah. And and I mean, I can't say I can't take my eyes off her I, because I'm not, you know, you're not seeing her. But in effect, that's what it was. Every time she, Lauren reconjures her, you, you're just galvanized. Who is this great, big, lumpy heroine in the making? You, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's so much fun. But it's, you know, it's so timely. It's set in the 12th century and it, it works all by itself just yeah. in that vein as, as, a, as a wonderful, uh, deeply, beautifully written, deeply entertaining work of fiction. But, it, you know, it's a defiant and very timely yeah. exploration of female ambition, power and creativity in yep. a corrupted world. Yep. And if that doesn't ring a bell, I don't know what I don't know what's <laughs> ding, going to. Ding, ding, ding. Right, and holding up, you know, the the mirror to our own times, yeah. Uh, which so uh, in that vein of um, great big swings by incredibly talented novelists, you know, Anthony Doerr, uh, wonderful person we've we've known for years, uh, and who of course um, wrote all the light we cannot see that I can't imagine, you know, anybody listening won't have uh, read it, won't have read it, and won the Pulitzer. He comes back. Uh, some years later with Cloud Cuckoo Land, which is just as wild uh, and imaginative and uh, an idea as the title suggests. One of those things that only somebody who is totally comfortable in his own skin with his own talents would would go for. I mean, it's, it's you know, and one of the reasons we're so excited to have Tony back is because we knew from the beginning that he was going to take this book and turn it into a talk because Tony always keeps giving, keeps, he keeps yeah. creating off yeah. of what he's created. And so, you know, he, he's going to give a talk with tons of images up on the big screen 
uh, that ranges from the introduction of gunpowder in medieval Europe to the fragility of old manuscripts, <laughs> because in fact, the story, the, the story of the novel is set in three wildly different time periods, one in Constantinople, one in the present day, and one in the future on a spaceship, but they all revolve around books yeah. and the belief in trying to gather, capture, preserve, and pass on certain stories that are the fuel and, and food of, um, of our children mm-hmm. uh, and the people who will come after. One of the things that we, di- we have done a lot in the last couple of weeks is the shuffling of the schedule. Because mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, I don't think people get quite the jigsaw puzzle that we hold in our hands all the time, mm-hmm. that we're always trying to graph this thing out in the most entertaining way. And I think we've got Tony that first night with the panel, and it just seems so so crazy smart. Mm-hmm. Well, he's so he's so optimistic in a way yeah. in in the in the way that he sees it, and he he writes children like young. He his right. characters are often young people, right? And he sees the the world through their eyes with such vitality and empathy. I know he wants to talk about at the conference how um, writing a work of fiction can mimic these interdependencies that ecologists recognize in nature. And to ask the question, can a work of literature remind us that, you know, even in the most dystopian moments, it's still worthwhile to chase our visions of a better place and a better life. So that seemed like a good place to begin as we get into much darker waters (laughs) right at the start. Right. Um, we have other great fiction writers too. Rebecca Donner, speaking oh. of our, the darker points of our histories. Yeah. This book has just taken off. It's called All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days. And she's a wonderful writer and historian. And she tracked down a family story about her great, great aunt who left the Midwest, ended up in Berlin just as Hitler was on the rise. And she, this this woman grad student became one of the leaders of the major resistance group to Hitler. It does not have a happy ending, of course, because she was finally caught. But the story of how one woman finds the courage or conviction to do this, knowing that her life is imperiled all the way, but also, and I guess this ties into Ukraine, how one demagogue, that would be Hitler, captured a country. She absolutely chases down the the arc of his coming to power in a country where the, when her great great aunt first got there, Berlin was a civilized place, right? There were mm-hmm. cafes, there was Extremely. literary. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he captures the minds and souls of his country with his demagoguery and basically playing to their sense of victimhood. And, and you hear that echoed in Putin, what he's saying about Ukraine. You know, they're trying to bully us. That was our country. And so her book, it, it's one of those books that you just can't put down. Again, the the amount of research she did to chase mm-hmm. down her aunt's story, to re-imagine um, or, or reconjure the Berlin as Hitler rises it works on so many levels. It's like a thriller. It's like a personal family story. It's it's a history. 
and it's it's remarkably moving. She she's fantastic. It's hard to believe it's real, and yet you know it is. And, exactly. Uh, you know the audio book of that is actually wonderful too. She reads I it, bet. and she obviously has a wonderful German uh, that she has. So it, the whole that the experience of listening to it is is fantastic. So I mean, there are so many writers to talk about, but I getting to the the end of our weekend, uh, as we will, I, there is something completely different. Every year we try and have a certain performative piece uh, that we do because we have this extraordinary stage uh, in Sun Valley and the, the pavilion that the Sun Valley Symphony plays on and it has rock concerts. So it has incredible sound, incredible screen and right. huge space. So this year, and this was, this was you all the this way. This was me all the way. Uh, I mean, I was, I had no idea what you were talking about at first. Um, why don't you give, okay. tell us what we're going to have? This yeah. is a hip hop improv musical troupe out of New York called Freestyle Love Supreme. It was started by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who probably everyone listening will know as the creator of Hamilton. He he put this troupe together and what they do, it's been a smash hit on Broadway and all over the country. You've got a troupe of improv people on the stage, five or six at a time. The audience yells out a prompt and then in rap, music, hip hop, they respond and just run with the idea. Apparently, it's just a kick of joy. And what they want to do is they keep their eyeballs on the conference as we go through our couple of days, so that when we get to this point at the end, they will have been conversant with enough of the stuff that's going on to tee off of it all. So everybody must come. They must participate. They're looking for audience participation. They're looking for just us to let fly. They are also, I need to say, going to give a class in hip hop improv with music. I will, of course, be taking. <laughs> uh, well, I can't wait to see them. We. It reminds me of when we had the improvised Shakespeare troupe. Right. Remember? I do. Because in that year, we also had uh, Stephen Breyer. Stephen Breyer. Supreme Court Justice. And so one of the audience members called out- uh, The Supremes. The Supremes. Yeah. And they they ended up doing an improv Shakespearean play right. in, in Shakespearean verse called- Courting the Supremes, which yeah. had Diana Ross yeah. as a character. So well, you're going to get the same brilliance here. It's just going to be slightly hipper. <laughs> so that's that's the second to last, uh, you know, program we have before the concert, the conference ends, and we are ending. Speaking of uplift, um, with Arthur Brooks again, who is one of the great speakers I've heard. And Arthur wears many hats, and indeed, before he became. Um, the author he is, and you know he's sort of a political philosopher and a, uh, a, a sociologist of a kind. But he also started as a French horn player. Yeah. So he has many, many talents. But he's just published a book that, uh, needless to say, has been incredibly successful. It's called From Strength to Strength. It is about the journey that Arthur has taken when he turned fifty and by his own account, was at the height of his career, although that remains to be seen. So it's <laughs> still, still rising. Um, he, he began to notice, as one does, that with all the things he had achieved, that in a way it created almost a bigger wake uh, you know, underneath him and a, right. a, a, a more 
a stronger and and harder to take feeling of diminishment mm-hmm. and a sense that what what lay ahead of him was going to be emptiness um, and inactivity and and whatever the opposite of accomplishment is. And so he spent the next seven years reading and investigating and interviewing with people about particularly successful people uh, about the second half halves of their lives and about what is it that allows them to find purpose? Mm -hmm. What is it that's missing if they don't have it? And what is it to make them feel fulfilled? And what happiness means in that context, as opposed to when you're 22? And uh, it's, you know, it's a kind of book that I would probably avoid most of the time, not just because (laughs) I'm in, I'm in that, I'm in that age wheelhouse myself at the moment, but uh, because it, it, it has a slight how-to aspect and it, that's just not my thing normally. Uh, but in, in Arthur's hands, uh, he's able to transform it again, narratively, you know, through the use of story and his understanding of the power of that to actually make you see your own path as it has happened, you know, what got you here in a much clearer way. And I, I found myself, you know, uh, for me, wildly optimistic. Uh, oh, and excellent. Yeah, it didn't last that long, but it was great, <laughs> great while it lasted. Uh, but anyway, I think uh, I know I I know him, and I know how he speaks, and I, I know it's going to be kind of a perfect note to leave off after a weekend that has through which we've traveled through both a lot of hard, dark waters because of the world being what it is, but also some great leaps of the imagination, some humor, um, and uh, poetry. But I think it'll be a way to send us off looking ahead. Our theme, which I was just thinking about, what matters most, question mark, mm-hmm. he's going to answer. That's it. It's, it's a perfect capper. With that said, I think uh, much as we could go on and on, I think <laughs> it's, it's, as we say, it's time to say goodbye <laughs> before, they, before they haul you off. We couldn't get to everybody on this remarkable program. Please go on the website. There are other writers coming that are just remarkable, awesome, fantastic. You can see them and their work on the website. SVWC.com. Thank you. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday. 